John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed entry 1436.PR1712, certificate number 51029. Winnipeg the Bear. It's been a minute, hasn't it, since we've done an early 20th century animal in the trenches story? It's amazing how many of them... We find. I didn't understand that this was a thing until we did the Polish bear and suddenly people were telling us about the Danish penguin and the Scottish uh, great auk and yeah, whatever else. There's a horse, there's a dog. I mean, those you kind of understand, but... Horses and dogs have some reason to be there. They've got a job. Yeah. Well, it, the bear had a job. <laughs> the bear had a lot of jobs. The bear is just a surprise. Yeah. Because, you know, what what crazy set of circumstances have to happen to get a uh, a bear or a... Uh, an auk. <laughs> or an auk, <laughs> for example. Or an owl yeah. or a uh, rabbit to the no man's land, you know? But, but based on the title of this episode, you're going to tell us that there was not one, but... At least two, maybe more bears what, in the trenches. What was the name of the? What was the previous guy? The Polish guy, Sergeant Stuka or whatever, Sergeant Schultz. Stubby, Stubby the bear. Stubby, Sergeant Stubby. Sergeant Schultz was a different uh, bear. Different bear. Oh no! Wait, Sergeant That's Stubby was the dog. It's Sergeant Stubby was the World War One dog. It's Wojciech, right? Yeah, there we go. Sergeant Wojciech. Why are they only a private Wojciech? Sergeant Stubby outranked Private Wojtek. But didn't Private Wojtek get promoted uh, at, at a certain point in in yeah. la- after the war? Yeah, I mean, he's a, he's a five-star general now. He's the chairman <laughs> of the Joint Chiefs of Staff of Poland at are the you moment. Saying, are you saying Private Wojtek is still alive? <laughs> I don't believe that's true. Although Private Wojtek was a World War II bear. Yes. And, uh, We've done World War One regimental mascots once and World War Two twice, and today we're going to break the tie in favor of the Great War, the First World War. Omnibus truly must be the number one shopping place in the culture in any era, yours or ours, for early 20th century regimental mascots of improbable nature. Although I, All the kangaroos <laughs> of the... Of the trenches. And I the feel song. like this is one of those podcasts that we've never heard of, but it turns out... Somewhere there's a there are 
three dudes who are doing a podcast on regimental animal mascots, and it's called something like Zoo Station. I mean, this is probably... <laughs> <laughs> this is probably true of every show that we do. You know, we're stepping the Hudson brothers. We were stepping on the foot of somebody doing little known seventies garage pop. I mean, basic, basically those guys, you could do a podcast just on the Hudson brothers. Every episode is a different, you could do a podcast just on Fanta. Yeah. Every oh, episode's yeah. a different flavor. Yeah. You could do it. You could do a whole 30 episode show about the Royal anus of, of Louis the 14th. You could do. We a, only did one of its adventures. You could do a ten-year running podcast just on you and me. <laughs> this is the podcast about omnibus. There should be an omnibus podcast where it's every episode is about an episode, an, ep- an entry of the omnibus. <laughs> amazing behind-the-scenes stories. Yeah, which is always the same. Yeah, right. <laughs> it took them forty minutes to get to the topic. <laughs> I showed up. You were taking notes off the internet. John had an implausible story about how he had a firsthand account and also didn't actually know the facts because he doesn't look at his notes. Today I showed up and you told me the two shows you had planned scrupulously to do yesterday and then had a last minute crisis of faith Yeah, and switched over entirely. Yeah, they were two very good shows and I worked on them for two days and then... At 10 o'clock this morning, I felt like, I can't do these shows. You're such a capricious artist. This is outrageous. Is this why you're not in, you haven't released an album recently? You keep burning your tapes like uh, you're some Brian Wilson figure now? Yeah, I get all the way done and I'm like, what? I can't release this garbage. (laughs) And I start over. There have been six fourth Long Winters albums. I will definitely do both the shows that I worked on uh, for two days, but the, but. Do you want to tease them? Uh, no, 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 no. I don't want people to know what we do in advance, but this show feels like one that you've worked on for weeks. No, this morning <laughs> we've been recording four shows in a sitting now. Cause we're so industrious, mostly yeah. you. He, you, you drag me kicking and screaming into your world of, of hard work and industry. Well, it's because both of us were at least in the past, we used to travel so much that there was, uh, yeah, there were sometimes weeks and weeks that we couldn't record and we needed a backlog. Luckily, a global pandemic fixed that. Yeah, I don't travel at all. You do travel, but we still, for some reason, record four shows a week. We, <laughs> we must have shows until March. We have shows through March of 2026 at this point. Good, good. Uh, you're listening to shows that we recorded right now in uh, 2017. It's 2017 right now. Mm-hmm. Um, we're super bummed about the election. Yeah, that was really sad. But we think um, Robert Mueller is going to save the day any day. Yeah, well, and and you know the internet is going to be is going to blossom and become a wonderful place. Social media is going to be the it's going to be the thing that saves us. I've been I've been making hilarious jokes about the president all day on Twitter, Me and too. I think this will never end. I probably post on Twitter ten times a day, and I hope it never ends. I'm never happier. Uh, the uh, why was I saying that? Oh, and so when we do four shows. Uh, my second show is, is lazy. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if people could tell now that they look back if they can tell what the uh, shows are when we're bright eyed and bushy tailed in the morning. Do you remember when? And which the afternoon shows are? We'd been doing the show for two years and it still hadn't dawned on most futurelings that that we alternated. That we alternated. <laughs> when we first said it, we got all these letters like, "Wait a minute, what?" There is an effect on Jeopardy where people who don't realize that shows are taped back to back to back five in a day suddenly understand that and explain why 
for example, the same joke keeps reappearing. <laughs> that doesn't happen though, right? You don't. No, they explain explaining why the Friday show there might be some fatigue oh. in a in a champion, especially a long running champion. Why the Monday show is like, you know, prone to upsets. Um, these are all things that follow from the fact that you're watching things days apart that happened moments apart. Is there any and the same is true of statistical analysis of like? People that go on on short runs lose on Friday because they're just tired. They've done five shows that day. Monday is a very common day for long runs to end, and it's the same thing. It's coming back after a break oh. where you don't have your mojo still. Um, I think uh, I felt noticeably less vibrant and on my game in Friday games. Certainly the interview stories were even more boring than usual. <laughs> so, Ken... <laughs> You went to BYU. Yeah, a little. It says here you like Marcona almonds. They're pretty good. They're one of the better almonds. I'm really getting into them lately. I wish somebody would do a supercut of just all of your between between game interviews to see how they got more and more interesting over time. Well, we did that recently for for Amy Schneider. I don't know if we did a supercut, but we I did an intro built around like all the kind of little things you learn about someone by chatting with them in 10-second increments uh-huh. every weeknight for a month or two. <laughs> it's a great way to get to know. So it's like speed dating, but the opposite. Yeah. Slow slow dating. How did you feel about Mark Hamill's star vehicle, Corvette Summer? <laughs> what if every Jeopardy interview was about Corvette Summer? So, Corvette Summer. Now, you know, this is the part of the show where we ask you for your take on Corvette Summer. We'll begin on the end with uh, Janet, a librarian from Milwaukee. I haven't seen it, Ken. All right, moving along. No, the so the second show I do every day is something that I have not meticulously planned. The 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 uh, previous Tuesday show I wrote yesterday. Yeah, right. But every other Tuesday is a show I just wrote this morning. So I'm usually looking for a quick and easily digestible story. I do not. I don't have time to go down a two hour rabbit hole if suddenly I discover that the um, you know, the war of what the, Spanish Spanish succession? I was going to say that, but that seems like the hacky <laughs> war to go to. That the Great Northern War is uh, fascinating in ways that I didn't dream of. Well, what's funny is that there was a period, what about a year ago, where I was—I don't know what was going on. I wasn't sleeping at night, and I would often come in and be doing the research. Yeah, you had you had here. done no prep by the time I arrived. Yeah, there were a couple of, definitely a couple of days where you were like, what, you don't even have a topic? And I was like, just throw me out a topic. I would do the research and then we do the show. We're an improv band now. Yeah. Somebody name a funny thing from history to do an omnibus about. The War of Jenkins' Ear. I heard the War of Jenkins' Ear. You yelled at me about it at one point. I was like, yeah, well, it's just kind of one of the things we do. And you were like, just so you know, it's not one of the things we do. And I was like, oh, okay. Well, I would often come over and then I would just be like surfing the web between yeah. shows um, while the next show came together. Real-time omnibus. Very exciting. So we're going to go back into the trenches. Yeah. Regimental mascots. That's where we belong. World War One is raging. I mean, world. this is actually a, a sop to our Canadian friends. Yeah, we we uh, we, we take a lot of, of fun at the expense of the Canadians. I can't. Although, I can't afford to anymore now that I'm hosting Jeopardy. We honor I, them, too. We, we honor the Canadians. You and I know Canadian culture we so do. well. We do. We celebrate its entire catalog. <laughs> we do. I've been to places in Canada that most Canadians have not been. Although, 
never been to Prince Edward Island. I'm sorry about that. I haven't either. And that's why I was unfamiliar with their tuberous crops. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, we got in trouble recently when we did the Halifax show. And who got in trouble? You got in trouble for saying that uh, 1867 is, oh, a, yeah. is, is a relatively recent I can Canadian handle, date, and that's the date of Confederation. I can handle that kind of that kind of trouble. But the reason for this kind of confusion, I mean, part of it is the the uh, what the asymmetry. I don't know that. Wait, I, we didn't even say the. No, we didn't. Alexa's Screw you, talking. Alexa. I mean, part, Canada has to just live with the asymmetry that they are a economy the size of California, right. which means if if you don't know the county seats of California, we don't have to know the provincial capitals of. <laughs> Canada. It's perfectly clear. We do. We do as a gesture of love and affection to you, our neighbors to the north. But it's not on on the merits. I mean, Canada um, has a population less than that of France or Germany or... It is by far the least populous member of the G8. Yes, right. Wait, is it the G7? I can't refresh this back. The G whatever. There are fewer people in Canada than Italy. Um, hang on, let's see. Where, what European country has what's, the same... What's the closest equivalence to Canada? Um, well, let's see. There Romania. Are, there are more people in Canada than Denmark by a long shot. Yeah. Let's see here You guys about did it. Romania. You guys are doing great. Nope, more people than in Romania. Most of Romania is Killing mountains. It. Killing it. Um, let's see about Ukraine. There's a very easy way to do this. Um, oh, there is? Well, there are fewer Can- people. Canada and Poland have near identical populations. There are more people in Ukraine. Canada and Poland. I would have thought Poland had more. Uh, well. They lost a lot of people along the way. Well, that's that's a kind of a bummer, John. Thanks that's for, a drag. Thanks for mentioning that. Listen, it's been a long time since we talked about Hitler. Canada, <laughs> <laughs> Canada had a, you know, a, arguably a, its own genocide, but you're right. Uh, Canada has roughly the population of Morocco, Uganda, or Poland. So look. Yeah, there you go. I know things about Canada that I would never know about Uganda. You just said there's an easy way to do that. What website did you just go to? Wikipedia has a list of countries ordered by population. You search for Canada, and then you look for the adjacent. Oh, how fun. Not really. (laughs) (laughs) But, uh... The other thing that kind of is confusing about Canada's origin story is that Canada kind of... Was Britain. It gradually coalesces over centuries in yeah. the way that, um, like, maybe a, a, a stain on your ceiling does. Oh. You know, the U.S. has a big Johnny Tremaine-ready story. Yeah, it happened one night. It's very dramatic. Yeah. One night there wasn't America, and then some... People in problematic costumes throw tea into water. Sure, some plucky colonists. Some plucky sons of liberty. That's right. And the next day, there is America. Well an, done. An America where everyone is friends and we all share exactly the same political beliefs. All problems had been solved. We all know that, um, you know, it would be critical race theory to say otherwise. Right. Um, whereas but Canada was a loose con- confederation of people that really didn't like each other. And, and today only mildly dislike each other. And there were great, great expanses where there was no one and still there is no one. Parliament was in charge of amendments to the Canadian Constitution until what year? John Roderick. You're talking about uh, the English Parliament? Yes. Uh, well, it was 1974. You're very close. 1982. Oh, wow. Canada finally decided that it would take over its own constitutional <laughs> amendment process, which is pretty much the end of a, you know, a hundred year 
Yeah. Uh, inching, sauntering toward independence. I'm surprised that Pierre Trudeau allowed <laughs> British Parliament to make decisions for him. I mean, 82 would be Trudeau era, right? That's well, le- that's, that's, prob- that's probably why it happened. Yeah, right. Um, the point is that when our story takes place at the beginning of the Great War, Canada is a dominion of the British Empire, which I believe is a term invented solely to refer to Canada. The dominion of Canada. To give it kind of a special status in the empire. Um, I still have one bill, of prestige, bills, but, Canadian money that says the dominion of Canada on it. Mm-hmm. It's uh, still a dominion, just not one of the British Empire. Oh, what's it a dominion of now? Of snow. Of and, its oneself? Uh, of snow and politeness. Okay. Uh, I think that politeness thing is kind of a myth. The DOSOP. Right? Yeah, I agree too. Yeah. But it seems like you kind of have to say it now. Like, oh, yeah. they're, such a, they're such a lovely people. I mean, they're technically polite, but there's a lot of darkness in Canada. Well, sure. But I mean, not just darkness of the sun, but darkness in their hearts. Darkness in the prairie. There's a lot of prairie darkness in them. They're, they're suffering from a bad case of, of prairie darkness. I've told you that all of the, all of the like, gangs and street culture in Toronto uh, reminds me of the gangs in 21 Jump Street. <laughs> like, they don't seem like real gangs. They seem like cartoon gangs. Like kind of made for yeah, made for UPN gangs? Yeah, like their colors are always green and yellow. <laughs> like, oh, it's the yellow bandana gang. Not real. They, uh, are they like kind of the racially mixed hoods that attack yeah. people in 80s Batman comics? Yeah, Like exactly. one guy with a mohawk... One guy that's vaguely Mediterranean. Although actually there's like biker gangs in Canada that are terrifying, but let's not talk about them. Do you think they're polite? I don't think so. I think they're American biker gangs that, that went to Canada. Yeah. We, we infected them. Their culture had a lot of purity. Yeah. They were pure. They were a pure culture. And then, (laughs) and then what happened? They came out to this clean country with your silk suits. No, I think actually they infected us with um with edgy 1970s comedy. Right? Oh. Modern comedy is Canada's fault. Yeah, in the middle of the United States, but out here in the West, they just send us amp- <laughs> like amputated feet and drunken baseball fans. Yeah. Uh, I this week I learned the abbreviation GTA speaking of Canadian gangs, which I thought referred to Grand Theft Auto. Right? It's well known to Canadians what it means if you're a GTA Canadian. GTA. Greater Toronto area. Greater Toronto. Toronto. Remember, Sorry, never, Toronto. never pronounce that no, second T. I'm not Canadian. <laughs> I can say, uh, what is it? Newfoundland. I don't have to say Newfoundland with no D and a, and a, a, a short A. Newfoundland New- and Toronto. We can say it the Amer- We don't have to say Melbourne. Oh, and Quebec. Oh, yeah. That's we can, nice. We're free to say Quebec I'm gonna all say, day. I'm going to say Quebec. I mean, they'll probably start sending us mail bombs at <laughs> some point. Quebec City. Uh, the reason why I go into the process of Canada's slow independence is not to besmirch our neighbors to the north. No. But to point out that in August 1914, Canada automatically found itself at war with Germany, whether it wanted to be or not. Right. Um, but there were provinces of Canada that weren't even part of the Dominion of Canada. That's correct. Newfoundland is um, was its own the last weird it's, a, thing. its own weird British uh, overseas territory. Yeah. I think. If not, guess what? I just got eight letters from Canada to and, correct me on that point. And what about Quebec? When did Quebec actually acquiesce to being part of Canada? Well, Quebec is part of Canada in this story, technically. <laughs> yeah, culturally, <laughs> it's not. 
They're still eating poutine angrily. Right. right. But what's interesting about this story is that Quebec automatically finds itself at war with Germany just because it's, the, the British crown is, and they're like, no, 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 we are not interested. <laughs> but the French are also at war with Germany. Yes. But there's nothing that Quebecois hate more than the French. <laughs> they don't even hate their fellow Canadians as much as they hate the French. Oh, do you think that's true? If we, oh, had to, yeah. if we had to rank the... Je me souviens. My friend. The nationalist hatreds of, of uh, the Quebecois. Um, the French hate them. So conscription begins in Canada like in, I don't know, 1917 or something. There's, there's, hmm. there's mm-hmm. a shortage of men. But in the, in the first flushes of war, many patriotic Canadians sure. head, head east and get on boats. Um, and that is certainly true of the protagonist of our story, Harry Colborne, or Colbin, they would probably say in, uh, in Australia. He, he lives in a coal bin there, um, <laughs> who is a Toronto GTA-bred veterinarian who has moved to Manitoba to become part of the provincial uh, Department of Agriculture. He's got, a, he's got a cushy government job in Manitoba, and he has, for a few years, been a member of, a, of an army reserve, I think uh, what would be called then a militia. Um, now today there are plenty of militias in Alberta and Manitoba, but this is, um, this is a different kind. Mm -hmm. You know, he's, he's part of a, a specific, you know, Canadian core, Mm -hmm. which is part of the, you know, which is overseen by the British army. Um, and so when Britain goes to war, Harry, who is already a militia member, happily signs up, um, with the Canadian expeditionary force headed to Europe. You know, America got to sit and, and and leave Europe twisting in the wind for a few years. Sure, we twiddled our thumbs. We thought we could stay out of it. We assumed it would be over soon, and so did Harry, as and it will turn so out. so did them all. So did them all. So Harry leaves uh, his, his uh, government job in Winnipeg, Manitoba, heading for Valcartier, Quebec, where he will... Out of the frying pan and into the fire. <laughs> <laughs> Where he will, and his fellow Canadian corpsmen will hop on a ship to the United Kingdom for further training and then deployment, presumably, in continental Europe. They're hopping on a ship there in the St. Lawrence Seaway. Yes. Well, they depart from, let's get this right, they depart from Gaspé Bay, which is where Quebec, where Quebec begins, which is where, it's, it's on the northeast coast of Quebec. Where is Valcartier? Let's get to the bottom of this, John, in real time. Yeah, I mean, this is just like knowing all the counties in California. This is like knowing all the crops of Prince Edward Island, and by that I mean something important <laughs> that every American should do. Um, Valcartier must have been a military installation because it's actually pretty far off the seaway. It's, it's, oh, um, it's in the Gulf of St. Lawrence. Yeah, it's like 10 miles north of northwest of Quebec City. And from there, Way they are there. headed to— Look at them out there. The Gaspé Bay, which I guess would have been the the Quebecois port, okay, and and that is way out on the. That's that little. That's on that little thumb of Quebec that kind of dangles over New Brunswick. So that's, that's what they like to. That's call an it. Atlantic port. The old thumb of Quebec. Yeah, that's that's kind of what the First Nations called it. Uh-huh. Well, and all of that should have been part of the great state of Maine. And uh, are well, we are we on the record? We 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 on the omnibus believe that all the Atlantic provinces should have been part of Maine. But do we think that about that part of Quebec as well? I mean, if there was 
if yeah, you should draw the line at the St. Lawrence. Yeah, if there was any sense in the matter, we would have Montreal. Yeah, I mean Montreal would be part of upstate New York, and it would be nice because it would be a part of upstate New York that was not just kind of a, a, a godforsaken Mad Max movie. <laughs> yeah. No, we love our <laughs> listeners in the fin- Finger Lakes region. But it's like, why is Staten Island not part of New Jersey? It doesn't make any sense. And why is Montreal not part of New York State? Now, let's be clear. We're speaking to a future in which the Atlantic provinces are probably part of the some North American confederation. Right. That, that is not an international border anymore. But we are not saying that we as Americans would want to colonize those today. Canadians no. hate that. We don't want to deal with uh, the people in Montreal. What do we want? I would take Vancouver Island. Sure. If it was offered to me. Sure. I mean, I think that Vancouver, Seattle, and Portland. Sure. Well, I'm not alone in thinking that. What would you call such a region near the Cascade Mountains? Hmm, Cascadia. No, Ecotopia. That's my preferred <laughs> term. But I, uh, but I wanted to go as far north as Whistler. Oh, that'd be nice. Yeah. You just, want, you just don't want to stop on the border on your way to Whistler. Nobody no, does. That's right. I want to be able to go freely to Whistler. See, other people are like, hey, national boundaries should follow established treaty and, and easy to understand lines of latitude. And you're like, national borders should exist to make it easier for me to ski. Yeah. I mean, frankly, you can have Yakima and Spokane. That's, uh, that's not pro- a fair trade, Province by the way. of Montana. It's not a fair trade <laughs> to give up Yakima in exchange for the greater Vancouver area. Um, a fair trade for whom? Harry Colborn's on a train to what we now understand to be a suburb of Quebec City on his way to a port on the Gulf of St. Lawrence. Is it branded Pan Am Airways by any chance? Or tra- Pan Am Railways? Oh, right. This is what we understand now about Canadian trains. Right. They're all named for airlines. Yeah. Why not? Let's imagine that it is. Okay. It says Horizon Air for some reason on this train he's on. <laughs> okay. They stop in White River, Ontario, on August 24th, 1914. And this is a fairly lengthy stop. Back then, um, steam trains need coal. They need water. Yes. And because this is primarily a military transport, there are many horses to be watered and exercised. Gotta water the horse. Um, Colburn assumes he's going to be part of the Veterinary Corps, the Royal Veterinary Army Corps, I think, that's attached to... um, the Canadian Expeditionary Force. Because, you know, we live in a time when the Army needs few veterinarians, John. I think it's the number one thing that that defines our era. These days. The lack of military veterinarians. But in hmm. 1914, sure. the front lines are full of dogs and horses. Yep. And that was a super important job. Yes. Tons of vets. I wonder when the Army crossed the veterinarian mechanic line. Do you think they needed more mechanics than veterinarians? Do you think Veterans Day used to be called Veterinarians Day, <laughs> and they just got rid of three syllables? This is another thing we should do. If there isn't already a Veterinarians Day, which surely there is, it should be the day after. After Veterans, after Veterans Day. Day, at twelve twelve p.m. on the twelfth of December of the twelfth day of the twelfth month, we should have a moment of silence for the veterinarians. So. White River, Ontario is suddenly, you know, as it probably is a few times a day in August 1914, home to a bunch of Canadian militiamen drilling in the town square and horses being exercised and watered and pooped near the train station. And as Harry Colborn heads back to the train station, he sees a man on the platform holding a small black bear on a leash. 
As you do. Yeah, he's not surprised at all. This is Canada. He would be surprised not to see such a man. He strikes up a conversation, and this was not uncommon for um, for towns and families to have, you know, amusing bears. Their only their 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 own amusing bear. Uh, as recently as 1982, Canadian black bears could add to the Canadian Constitution. <laughs> until Pierre Trudeau <laughs> made that change in the House of Commons, twenty percent of the legislature in Canada were black bears. Were playful black bears on leashes. I never had heard of Gaspé, and now I've added. Now you can't it, get enough of it. Now I've added it to the places that I want to visit. the the um, The landscape is beautiful. I've seen pictures of the coast here. Almost certainly, they do not want me to visit. They seem like a very small place. No, on the sign it says, in fact, <laughs> no John Roberts. Je me souviens is what it says. Um, being an animal lover. Harry strikes up a conversation with the man with the bear. Hey, buddy. Hey, bud. Nice bear, he, he says. <laughs> hey, hey there, fella. <laughs> what's uh, what's up there with the uh, what's up there with the bear? What can you tell me about the bear you got there? <laughs> and the man says, "Well, I'm a trapper, and I, I don't know how he says this, but it comes out that he has just shot this bear's mom. Oh, see, orphaning this adorable young black bear. This story got sad. It's sad. It's briefly sad. Which he now wants to sell for twenty dollars, twenty Canadian dollars, ten toonies, which was a lot back then. Ten it, Canadian dollars. No, that's hundreds of that's hundreds of U.S. dollars today. Um, but still, if someone said, "I'll sell you this bear." For $200, it would still seem like quite a deal. That's an interesting thing. I mean, there's no situation in which you'd say yes to this. And yet, what we have here is a man far but, from home on a train. You wouldn't say yes to it. You're saying you would buy a bear on a, at a train station. I feel like I... It's never come up, so you have no evidence either way. I feel like if somebody said, I have a bear, I would immediately say, you are an irresponsible person. And if they said, I'll sell it to you for $200, I would say... You do not know the value of a bear or the value of a dollar. You're not just bad at tending bears. You are bad at bear economics. And I would say, I will pay $200 to take this bear from you and find a good place for this bear. We don't know Colburn's motives, but that appears to be part of it. He's an animal lover who knows that this trapper is not to be trusted with bears. The very first thing he learned about this trapper is that he just killed a bear. Right. Um, and But the other thing is... He's just traveled halfway across Canada. You know that kind of liminal space you get into on planes where you'll... Or cross-country trains. Exactly. You well, get into a weird in a space. Greyhound station. Like in an airport, you'll you'll pay you'll pay nineteen dollars for a <laughs> for a slider, you know? Yeah. Like you'll just make bad decisions when you, it's why people <laughs> it's why so much of air travel is built around day drinking. Right. Because you're in a space where the rules don't apply and you can do whatever you want, and that means maybe having a Jack and Coke at, at 11 a.m. This is true of trains, too. There's a bar car. Of all the cars you could have on a train, a movie car, a roller skating car. No, they would all have to rhyme. Oh, yeah, right. That's one of the appeals of the bar well, car. You put the car at the end and call it the far car. There could be a jar car for, yeah. for jams and jellies. Yeah, that's right. There could be a, a guar car if you're a really <laughs> big fan of the band you're guar. you're into the music of guar. <laughs> But a bar car. I would go on a train that had a guar car. <laughs> I mean, if you take uh, long distance trains in Europe, the bar car, like three quarters of the train is in the bar car. 
And it's the whole reason why airport lounges exist. Yeah. Is so people can get free liquor at 10 a.m. It's such an important building block of society. (laughs) (laughs) So I imagine Harry Colborn in this kind of liminal space that travel brings, where you're open to the universe, you know, where you're, you're at home, you're just hidebound by habit. But on a train station in White River, Ontario, you can find yourself saying things like, hey, I'll buy that bear off you for $10. Or $20, Uh I guess. Uh Which is what Harry says. And so he travels the rest of the way to Quebec with a small black bear in tow on a leash. Oh, this sounds really fun and sweet. It doesn't seem like he's aware of the tradition that we know about on Omnibus of every mascot, every every regiment having a, a kangaroo or something. Right. He just thinks, well, I'll figure it out when I get there. I mean, White River, Ontario is middle of nowhere, and Ontario is... Don't I mean, say Ontario's middle of nowhere, we'll get letters. But, you know, it's up, like, above Lake Superior, you know, place where there is not... It, using the using the contemporary grammar of this episode, it is not nowhere. It's got four you know streets. How, you know how some places have... Things and locations in them. Yeah. Much of Ontario is different from that. Oh. In that it has no locations and few things. <laughs> it's right next to Picnic Lake. Oh. So people must go out from White River to Picnic if, Lake. Do you get the sense that White River used to be bigger at a time when it was an important railroad stop? Looking at it on Google Maps, it appears to have no evidence of ever being bigger <laughs> It's not like Lisbon. You can't dig a subway there and find no find the ruins of the previous White River. And also, the White River itself appears to be a real straggler. So our man and his bear arrive in Quebec. His corporal, as you might expect, is unhappy with oh. this new veterinarian arriving with a bear and with plans to take the bear, and with no plans to dispose of the bear. What the hell are you doing, eh? With that bear? <laughs> Pile? What the heck do you think this is? <laughs> what is your major malfunction? <laughs> Jiminy Christmas. I'm trying to do Arlie Ermey and a Canadian accent. <laughs> He's born again hard. Uh, and But you know what happens? Like, maybe it's because these are big Canadian softies, or maybe it's because... It was a funner time. The bear, which which um, Harry names Winnipeg in honor of his hometown, sure. is such a charmer. Yeah. But immediately, Harry and Winnipeg win the hearts of the regiment. And when the SS Manitou arrives in the port in Gaspé to take them all to England, uh, no one can deny passage to Winnipeg, this delightful baby bear. Now, soon... This regiment arrives at Salisbury, England, in Wiltshire, and specifically, they arrive on the Salisbury Plain. They, uh, our story takes us to Stonehenge, John. Yes. Isn't this a funny thing about the Salisbury Plain, which I think I had only, when you watch the movie Help, and the Beatles are out driving tanks and testing artillery at Stonehenge, I did not think to myself, obviously, this is what Her Majesty's Army does is train at Stonehenge. But at this time, and for much of the 20th century, the Salisbury Plain was a big, uh, what do you call it, testing ground for artillery, and there was a big aerodrome, like, like just meters away from the the megaliths at Stonehenge. 
huh. which was gradually taken down in the 20s. I mean, this is not just a UNESCO World Heritage Site, but like a one-of-a-kind iconic part of Britain with its standing stones and its other henges and its barrow mounds and its chalk drawings. Well, you know, they built that ding-dong expressway right through the site. What? But, but even before, well, I guess, no, I guess the expressway would have been there, I think, actually. But if you think about, if you think about Athens and the fact that, that people just throw their garbage into, into ruins that are 3,000 years old. Don't they have just places in Scotland or Wales or Cornwall where you could drive tanks around and shoot guns? I think, do you have to do it? Do you have to do it not a hundred yards from Stonehenge? It seems that all of Scotland you could use as a as a. It's the Ontario of uh, of the British Isles. What's What's even more interesting is that there is a British Army training unit called Suffield in Alberta. Huh. So the British actually drive their tanks around in Alberta. I mean, you have to get your tanks there. And maybe they just they called it Suffield because they missed Sheffield. <laughs> And the H, is it like a shibboleth? If you say it with the H, they know you're British? Yeah, maybe so. This entry in the omnibus is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform for building your brand and growing a business online because they can help you create a beautiful website, engage with your audience and sell anything, whether that's your products, your content, even your time. We use Squarespace and... uh Whatever it is you're making, doing, or selling, Squarespace has all the tools you need to get your business off the ground. Easy to use. They have custom templates, for example. You know, so you can, they have best-in-class templates for no matter what your site is or needs to look like. You just search for the category of business you have, and they've got a website look that will work for you. JohnRoderick.com is a Squarespace template that I modded to be cool, as cool as me. I mean, maybe you're starting a business that's by appointment Ooh. and you're going to be a personal trainer or offer consulting services. Guess what? You can also add online booking and scheduling to your Squarespace site. They've already got an engine ready to go. That'll handle all your booking and scheduling. Whatever it is you're making, doing or selling Squarespace has all the tools you need to get your business off the ground. So it's not just a website. You also get inventory management. You get web checkout. You get secure payments. It all comes bundled together. So head to squarespace.com slash omnibus for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use offer code omnibus to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. So Harry and Winnipeg are now living in a tent on Salisbury Plain. So cute. And I think, if I remember, I didn't Private Wojtek, like, what, they dug a pit for it or something? I don't know where Private Wojtek lived. Yeah, they, but they, uh, they, get, they, they built a tiny house. When, yeah, they built a tiny bear-scale <laughs> house, and they kept expanding it as the bear group. But when Winnipeg is tiny, he actually sleeps under Colburn's cot in his tent. Occasionally, Colburn will wake up in the morning to find that... Um, uh, Winnipeg has instinctively climbed up the center tent pole as if it was a tree and is just kind of chilling on the roof of the tent. Aww. Um, as baby bears, as playful baby bears do. This is back before tent posts were tiny little fishing poles. This, this must have were, been a sturdier, bigger tent. Yeah, they like were, a, this is a barrack-sized tent. Canvas and wood. But even so, as Winnipeg begins to grow, 
uh, Colborne and his superiors presumably become wary of the safety of having a black bear climb your tent pole. Um, How fast does a bear cub grow? It says here that a brown bear can uh, can weigh between 150 and 200 pounds at the end of their first year. Well, we're st- oh, still in the fall of 1914. It's possible that Winnipeg is still only a few months old. Okay. All right. Then in, in that case, he's still, I mean, small enough to wrestle to the ground. Well, the men love him. They Everybody wants to be in a photo. He's very playful. Yep. Colburn teaches him to walk on all fours. Oh, that's a nice trick. You know, he's, he's having been tragically orphaned as such a young baby, he's imprinted on humans, and this is now his family. Right. He learns the harmonica. He's like, he's play, putting, playing a valuable role. Unfortunately, he's getting bigger, and these men of the Canadian Expeditionary Force are about to be deployed across the channel. They've to surely France. been feeding him beer this whole time. And if you're a Polish regiment, you bring your your bear or your saluki or your uh-huh. wallaby or whatever you have, your snowy owl. Because they walk along beside your covered wagon. But Colborne realizes this is not going to fly in His Majesty. George V's army that you just cannot bring a full-grown black bear to no man's land. And he sadly drives down the EA, whatever it would have been, to London one day and leaves him at the London Zoo saying... Oh, I thought you were going to say leaves him at the London train station. And leaves him at <laughs> King Cross, St. Pancras. <laughs> no, he is arranged with the London Zoo to take on a bear. And there's still a, there's a statue of Harry in Winnipeg at the London Zoo today. Uh, the, you're a zoo fan, right? Yeah. Oh, well, you know, zoos are problematic, but I've also been to a lot of zoos. I'm pro zoo. Actually. You enjoy a zoo. Well, you live right next to a zoo. Yeah. We kind of use it as a. And it's a great zoo. Like a premier zoo. A forward thinking zoo. Even when we were kids, they were like, you know what? We're going to build a fake jungle to put the tiger in. The tiger should not be pacing in a cement. I went to the Madrid Zoo in the 80s, and it was one of those nightmare zoos where they had giant, they had great apes in like cement boxes and um, and not even a ball in there to play with. And the great ape just sat there while Spanish children taunted it. It was really bad. Because the zoo is so close to our house, when the kids were littler, we would just use it as kind of a neighborhood Park and it was fun to just walk. You know, we bought a year membership so you could just walk over to the zoo, and it was kind of like getting Disneyland, getting into Disneyland an hour early. You know, like the animals are all there doing their thing, but there's no people there on a on a rainy afternoon after school or a you know a, a, a cool summer, you know, a cool weekend off season or something. I made the mistake of buying a year membership one time, but I don't live near the zoo. <laughs> and you never went. I was, you know, you go twice, and it's like, well, that didn't pay off. We're big supporters now. But, I, you know, I asked our friend George. I thought, if anybody can tell me if I should be pro-zoo or not. Oh, George would know. Let me ask George, you know, who's a, a lover of the earth and yeah, gives... A sensitive man. Gives untold wealth every year to uh, an endangered tortoise of some kind, or a, not a particular tortoise, but maybe a particular species, or the, the tree kangaroos, or... George isn't sponsoring a single tortoise. We sponsor an elephant. Yeah, it's, it's the, it seems like the least he could do. No, no, he's he's dealing with the problem on a whole different scale. Yeah. And he's trying to help all the tortoises. About the zoo. He said maybe there are some species that do not lend themselves 
to American Urban Zoos. Like maybe, a maybe. hyena. Have you ever seen that hyena? Well, surely you've seen those hyenas at the Woodland Park Zoo. They are really trying to get out. And they smell. They smell bad. Uh, no, he said he said elephants. You know, like the, the oh, Bob yeah. Barker case against elephants in zoos is, you know, a legit thing. But there are those wonderful places that elephants can go retire and live with other elephants. Like the Sheldrick Wildlife Trust. Right. Brought to, brought to you by Omnibus. But it's nice to see them. He, but he said for the most part, like, you know, zoos are such an important part of conservation, raising money for conservation efforts, for raising um, awareness in kids who otherwise wouldn't be able to see these species. You know, most of the animals you see in zoos are not animals that could live in the wild now anyway. Right. They would be dyed. Um, yeah. So those, those giraffes are really something when you see them up close. Woo. So I have a. I feel like he gave me Permission. carte blanche. Yeah. yeah. He's an advanced, morally Buddhist person who told me it's okay. You but, know, the Seattle Aquarium will capture a giant octopus every year or two. Sure, for the for the big holiday feed. Yeah, keep him in so there. Make a delicious Greek salad out of him. We all look at him, and then at the end of his term, they, you know, he or she, they dump him back in the sea, and they replace him with a lookalike, just like my parents used to do with the family parakeet. <laughs> Is that right? You had a parakeet, and it died, and they didn't tell you, and they just put a new one in there. Twice, I think. Whoa. And you and your brother were fooled? All parakeets look the same if you get the color right. Right. All, all, you know, every green bajaragar, I mean, this is going to sound super racist to our bajaragar listeners. Yeah. Every green bajaragar looks like every other green bajaragar. And so there would be a, n- a new, much younger bajaragar, and you and your brother would be like, hey, it's, it's Sammy. Well, don't those kind of birds just live forever anyway? I guess so. Like a, if you get a parrot, if you went out and bought a parrot today, John, it would dance on your grave. Well, what if I got an ex-parrot? <laughs> They rarely become experts. <laughs> they take so long to become experts, is but, what I'm and saying. And the thing about a parakeet is, after you've had it for a year, it's not like you look at it that much. <laughs> you just walk past and go, oh, yeah, squeak. Oh, yeah, remember that year we got the parakeet? Yeah, and mom keeps feeding it. And you don't even hear the irritating noises anymore, which is good. Squeak. So Winnipeg gets sadly dropped off at the, off at the zoo, and Harry goes off to France. And Winnipeg has a much better war than Harry does. Oh, I bet. Uh because France is pretty rough. We have Harry's pocket diary, and he's very much a stiff upper lip man of his time. Just just the facts, kind of reporting what's going on. Yeah, and it's pretty clear that he is, you know, leaving aside all the visceral, awful detail. Is he in the S word? Yes, he is in the Psalm. You mean? Yes, <laughs> yes. He's in the S word. He's in the Psalm. Um, Taking it. Tending to the horses. So, you know, you read stuff like this. Germans visit horse lines AM. This is uh, April 19th, 1915 in Ypres. Germans visit horse lines. Sorry, I, I, I started over. <laughs> okay. He's in Flanders. It begins, visit horse lines AM. Germans shell town and kill four soldiers in Grand Place. Many others injured. Saw airplane fall. Stay in cellar under large grocery store for several hours. Tremendous shelling. And then new line, Fine. <laughs> but you know he's not fine. No, I think we would we would the language of mental health and trauma today. We know that he's not. That doesn't sound fine. fine. He has to write things like very severe month on our horses. Many die from exposure. One saddle horse destroyed. Eighteenth Battalion A.M. March twenty sixth, nineteen seventeen. He leaves out the fact that he was the one who had to shoot the horse, and presumably 
many others who were injured. If you are a horse lover, that has to be traumatic. Yes, I guess we should say this is for all the people who will for equine listeners will not watch a movie where the horse dies, but too late. But two hundred soldiers (laughs) do die. We should mention that World War One was not easy on a lot of the animals. They saw War Horse. They know. Here's him on 20th December 1917. Go to bed down sick. In fact, he's had repeated hospital stays for everything from influenza to bladder infection to gonorrhea. So I guess Hmm. the war wasn't all bad. Yeah, not the worst war. By January 9th of 1918, he's been diagnosed with DAH. DAH. Which I had uh, an acronym I was not aware of. Disordered Action of the Heart or Soldier's Heart. Oh. Which is basically what they're calling... Uh, anxiety? Yeah, shell shock, war, yeah. war trauma, which requires an extended medical leave back to Canada. Um, oh, well, that's pretty extended. His diary, his medical chart, but not his diary, reveals that he is, um, the war has been just really hard on him in ev- on every level, physically and emotionally. When he's on leave, he gets to, you know, he leaves. He finds another bear. <laughs> he's at a train station in Devon. <laughs> he invents Penguin Classics and finds a man holding a penguin on a leash. No, he. I mean, he thinks like everyone else. He's going to be home by Christmas, so he's. He tells the zookeepers, "Just keep Winnipeg for a couple months. I'll be back." Then the years drag on, and finally he realizes that it's been too late. He can't. Winnipeg is a beloved fixture at the zoo. He's had Winnipeg's had a. Sorry, she. She's had a great war. The children are allowed into the enclosure to play with her. Sure, she weighs three hundred eighty-five pounds. The soldiers used to feed her um, cans of condensed milk, which was like the sweetest thing in there. Oh, I wish that people in their would rations? serve me cans of condensed milk. People would do serve you cans of condensed milk. <laughs> your, <laughs> your, your daughter's mom just walked into the room and brought you a bowl full of condensed milk. Yeah, it's kind of true. As she does halfway through every show. Sort of true. Um, so the zoo would you know would mix up condensed milk with corn syrup, Winnie's favorite, Winnipeg's favorite treat, and the the children would be allowed to, to feed her. Um, so when even though... Uh, Harry is allowed to visit Winnipeg on leave when he's in London during the war. He finally, at you know, when, when the armistice is declared and he heads home to Canada, he decides to donate her to the zoo where she's now a beloved part of London. It says here the largest female black bears can exceed 500 pounds. Wow. That's a big lady. Much bigger than, than on that train station. Remember back in the early part of the show? Oh, and there's a cute little bear. Good times. Um, Colburn actually does stay in London for a bit. He does some post-grad work at the Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons. Um, he stays in the game. Yeah, he stays a veterinary. You know, he moves back to Canada in 1920. He stays in Winnipeg. He doesn't go back to the Provincial Department of Agriculture, but he opens his own practice dealing with, you know, this is still a rural part of Canada. You know? I feel like after you've treated a bunch of war horses, yeah. you're kind of maybe an expert on horses in he became, a way. He becomes a large animal vet. Yeah. You know, there are still farms nearby, even though Winnipeg is one of the bigger cities in the province. Is that true today? Winnipeg's the biggest city in Manitoba. For yes? sure. Yeah, okay. Uh, and lives to be, well, not that ripe in old age. He dies in 1947. Never learning about what happened to Winnipeg. He really... They didn't keep in, they didn't like write letters. The funny thing is Winnipeg becomes more famous than anyone could have predicted. Should we do this in, uh, maybe people can guess what's coming here, but maybe let's do this Paul Harvey style. Okay. We now introduce a London playwright named Alan. And now 
the rest of the story. We're not there yet. We're oh, okay. St- we're still concealing his identity and oh, calling okay. him Alan. Okay, Alan. I'll point to you. At some point, I'm going to point to you with two fingers like this, and that's when you're going to do your Paul Harvey. Okay, good. Okay. Alan has also had a rough war. He was injured in the Somme. He uh, then got dispatched to MI7. Did you know there was an MI7? No. MI5 is the domestic uh, spy agency. MI6 is the international MI7 one. MI7 seems like it would be the fake super secret one from one of those yeah. uh, from one of those uh, movies with Colin Firth in them. Yeah, exactly. Some signals intelligence group that no one's ever heard of. But SEAL ev- Team 6. But everybody has poison umbrellas or whatever. What is it? Wartime propaganda. It's the it's the public it's the it's public affairs basically for MI5 and 6. It's um yeah. it's domestic and foreign propaganda. Loose lips sink ships. And Alan being a writer uh is very happy to be out of the S word and in behind a typewriter. Um Did you just pronounce it typewriter? I've decided I'm going to start saying typewriter for syllables. Okay, yeah. good. That's how they say it in Canada. I yeah. can't believe you didn't know that. That's the that's the omnibus way. <laughs> People are going to have to co- uh, make a dictionary. At, I at say aeroplane. <laughs> and I say, typewriter. Um, but when he comes back from the war, he starts to become a... When he leaves MI7, he's a lieutenant. He eases right back into his literary life. He, you know, he has he's written some juvenilia, but after the war, he actually becomes quite successful writing plays, writing screenplays for the British film industry. He's got West End hits. Um, he becomes an, a, a contributor and then an assistant editor at Punch. Oh, yeah. The leading... Uh, you know, voice of British humor and satire at the time. He uh, he actually writes a memoir about his traumatic war experiences called Peace with Honor. Oh, kind that's of a, a nice title. Kind of a lefty take. On sure, a little slap at Wilson. The funny thing is, in 1940, when war, you know, when European war again had to seem patriotic and necessary, he recanted Peace with Honor and wrote a second memoir called War with Honor. Oh. So, kind of like when Leonard Nimoy wrote, I am not Spock, and then he wrote, just kidding, I'm totally Spock. <laughs> um, he he's uh, At this point, when we pick up his story, he's about to write a very popular um, murder mystery that's going to be a best-selling detective story. But in 1924, he's got a young son, and he loves to take him to the zoo. His son, whom everybody calls Billy Moon, is a huge fan of the London Zoo, and of Winnipeg in particular, like like little boys all over London. Uh, he loves to visit Winnipeg. In fact, he even gets to go in the cage and feed Winnipeg oh. the condensed milk mixture. Um, and uh, in 1925, Alan's career is doing well enough that he and his family, including his young son, Billy Moon, can relocate to Sussex. They live in... Uh, the Ashdown Forest, in the very house, by the way, that Brian Jones would later let in the 60s and install an ill-advised swimming pool. Really? Yeah, Alan and his family live in the exact same house where Brian Jones of the Rolling Stones died. Yeah, there was no pool there at the time. Um, Billy Moon loves Winnipeg. And in fact, Billy Moon has always loved animals. In Herod's, in the early 20s, Alan bought for his son a one, bear. One of the fat, not a real one. There was not a trapper on a leash in the middle of Harrods. <laughs> you could buy anything at Harrods. <laughs> but he buys him one of the newly fashionable teddy bears. Oh yeah. And he and his son and his son becomes so attached to the teddy bear that Alan begins incorporating 
the bear and, and uh, Billy Moon's other stuffed animals into their nighttime stories. And he begins uh, publishing some of these stories in Punch, where he's an editor, but also in Vanity Fair, in the London Evening News. Now, hold on. And now, the rest of the story. As you may have guessed, Alan is Alan Alexander Milne. The writer we know today is A.A. Milne. Billy Moon was what they called his son, Christopher Robin Milne. I don't know why Billy, but Moon was a corruption of Milne because uh, his toddler mouth could not pronounce the name Milne Uh because it's just impossible to say L and N together and words like kiln should not exist. Everybody knows that in the UK, Billy is a diminutive for Christopher Robin. (laughs) That's correct. It's one of those crazy Margaret Peggy things. People love these stories that he's writing about his son, Christopher Robin, and his constant companion, Edward Bear. But Christopher Robin is becoming such a fan of of, uh, Winnipeg the Bear every time his parents or his dad or his nanny or whoever takes him to the London Zoo that he decides he wants to rename Edward Bear. And he decides to name him Winnie in honor of what the zoo, the school children at the zoo called Winnipeg the Bear. And he adds Pooh uh, as a nod to a swan <laughs> that he saw on holiday that he decided he would call Pooh. So he repurposes the name Pooh for his bear. Children are really something. <laughs> we, we it's ha- funny to watch the, those wheels turn and then just decide something. Yeah, we have a squirrel. I, uh, there, there's a, there are three squirrels in my yard. Uh, there are two boys and a girl, and the two boys are always fighting. And the biggest one, my daughter uh, said, that squirrel's name is Beaver. <laughs> and Named I, after the swan, Beaver. <laughs> I tried to get her to explain why the squirrel was named Beaver, and she was like, it's just his name. He's, that's just Beaver. And then she named the other two and gave them Christian names. But the big squirrel is named Beaver. And alas, will go to an unbaptized, unconsecrated grave. <laughs> yeah, the other two are Christians. But he is some kind of, he's an untamed wild Like the seriousness bear. and the certainty with which kids decide something, things yeah. like that, is just unreal. And it makes you think that they are, it at least gives the impression they're tapped into some deeper reality. Yeah. This is Winnie the Bear. That they knew something we didn't. Plus the poo, a swan. Like, I've never been that sure about, like, what sandwich to get at Panera, you know? And kids will just be like, my bear is now called Winnie the Poo. Oh, when my daughter first learned to talk, she said um, that she had two friends, Lala and Ungakinga. <laughs> and she played with Lala and Ungakinga. Until she was five, six, maybe. And my mom was convinced that Unga Kinga was an African chieftain and that Marlo had lived a prior life. And Lala and Unga Kinga were, uh, were memories she had of her life in Africa. You don't seem to be condoning this. I don't understand any of it. But she kept talking about Lala and Unga Kinga long after she could read and long after she had her whole separate universe. They, they only dropped away after she turned, after she went to school. 
Well, Christopher Robin continues to have adventures in Ashdown Forest, pr- particularly the 500-acre wood region of the forest, mm-hmm. which which gets fictionalized as the 100-acre wood. Mm-hmm. Um, none of the Rolling Stones appear. It's much more manageable. <laughs> right, right. You don't want to take care of 400 extra acres of woods. So Brian Jones lived... Lived in A.A. Milne's estate. Wow. Isn't that nuts? Did Well, he must have known. If if A. A. Milne had just put in a nice greenhouse or something, such that it would be harder to build a pro, a, a, a pool, Brian yeah. Jones would still be alive today. I mean, they still would have kicked him out of the band because yeah, he was he in a terrible have, place. Right he would have been a drug-addled uh, mess, but maybe not if he had a greenhouse full of orchids to tend. Yeah, or if you know, if he had just had a like a uh, a badminton court or <laughs> right, some helpful morning tennis. Yeah, lawn bowling. Uh. These finally, Milne accumulates enough of these stories to publish a collection of them, which comes out in October 1926, I believe, and by Christmas has sold 150,000 wow. copies. Now, my understanding of Punch was that it was fairly satirical and and uh, bitter. How did the early Winnie the Pooh stories acquit themselves? I don't think all of the Winnie the Pooh stories appeared in. Punch. Just the ones that were super sardonic. Maybe some of his comical, but the fact is Pooh, uh, Punch apparently would print like light verse by dads about their, oh, yeah, about their kids' um, idiosyncratic bath times and bedtimes. It wasn't know? Viz magazine. It wasn't uh, Spy right, magazine, okay. I guess. Uh, today, of course, the Winnie the Pooh books have sold 70 million copies, um, oh, like, in- including a Latin translation, which made the New York Times bestseller list in the 50s. The only... Latin language book ever to appear on the Times bestseller list was Winnie Ile Pooh. Huh. Um, I grew up on Winnie the Pooh. I played Christopher Robin in a local theater production. Christopher House Robin. At, House at Pooh Corner. Rabbit, would you have a jar of honey? Wow, that's very good. That's really not. No, it's... Pri- it's he's quite- such a mooch. He's always just wandering around, you know, the forest with no, you know, he's got a house full of empty food jars. He's some kind of weird hoarder. And he's always just annoying his friends to feed him. He's hungry, and no one else appears to like honey as much as he. Well, Rabbit has honey and condensed milk. He just doesn't want to give it to him. Oh, right. Maybe correctly. Have you ever had honey and condensed milk? Pooh, um, Rabbit offers to poo on bread, and Pooh doesn't even eat the bread. Is honey good with condensed milk? I've never had it. I don't know. I've had honey on toast, though. But now that I know that a, a wartime bear was forced to eat it because there was nothing else good in the forced. in the ration kits. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, he did. It's not like he had his choice of tidbits. So this is the story of why Winnie the Pooh likes condensed milk. It's not. Um, it's not because honey isn't good it's because of wartime yeah privation whoa and that's an interesting thing about the winnie the pooh winnie the pooh story now that we know it comes from you know kind of a dark story of the trenches uh not only a.a a. milne's wartime trauma but harry colburn's um the fact that the book is set in kind of an idealized sussex you know a rural arcadia fall far from all this uh, in the years immediately following the trauma of world, the cultural trauma of World War One, it's often held as a reason for the book's success. You know, yeah. it's a it's a step backwards into a simpler time, a simpler England, untouched by the the generational trauma and There's so forth. Almost no war in Winnie the Pooh. Like World War One has, like it almost never appears. Yeah, I mean, there is that one time that the heffalumps um, dig right. under 
rabbit's home and and, and blow him sky mine. high. Yeah. yeah, and then and then owl has to move into piglet's house. Yeah, and the time that Eeyore fell into a muddy trench and was covered immediately with skeletons <laughs> of the Huns it was a bad book. But you know, the funny thing is, even though I think there was some, you know, all that war stuff is in Frog and Toad. <laughs> Frog and Toad seems untouched by war. Did yeah, you know that Frog and Toad is just like a, um, I think the author was a closeted gay man. Yeah. And so the close male friendship in Frog and Toad is kind of the life he could have lived in a more open society. Oh. Like, it's really very touching to read it when you read Frog and Toad in that light. Like, what if they're an old married couple? Yeah, they're so much gen- more gentle than like Ren and Stimpy. If you write a book called Frog and Toad Are Friends, it really seems like you're protesting too much. <laughs> Like, like frog and toad are just friends. No, they're friends. I don't know if they're friends. Nice so frogs, much. never married. <laughs> um, Harry Colborne never actually heard. You know, even though the 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 fewer, you know, the millions of copies of this book sold meant that there was a lot of ink on on Winnie the Pooh's origins, and in fact, Christopher Robin became a media hero. You know, despite kind of what you might think from his memoir and, and the the movie that fictionalized it, he he actually didn't mind being a doing national press tours. Mm-hmm. He kind of liked the fun and excitement, as a lot of as a lot of five or six year olds probably would. Or he's probably a little older at this point. Christopher Robin was born in nineteen twenty. Oh no, so he would have been quite young. He would have been six when the book came out. Um, but it was when he was got sent off to boarding school. That he just got mercilessly, brutally teased for, you know, his adventures with his stuffed animals. Yeah, don't. And in particular, some of the verse, the sentimental verse that his dad wrote about him, you know, him saying his nighttime prayers, like, and honestly, this probably says more about the British boarding school system of the time than it does about... any particular plot element of the books or the poetry. But. I'm, I'm reading David Copperfield right now, and uh, boy, it doesn't paint a cherry picture. He's a, but he's in some kind of orphan's home, isn't he? No, it's a boarding school. Oh, he is? Yeah, his mom's still alive. Oh, right. Um, no, it's just a strict boarding school. Lame. Not, not a real nice one? No, and I bet you, well. That's why Prince Charles is so messed up today. Exactly. He, had to go to, he had to go to England's worst Boarding school. But it wasn't for poor kids. No. It was worse in the sense that you were getting abused and possibly sexually molested the whole time you were there. Yeah. Prince Philip, on the other hand, lived a long life. (laughs) So Christopher Robin, for the rest of his life, was kind of famously unhappy with his childhood fame just because of how much it traumatized him in in childhood and adolescence. Yeah. Yeah, he, He opened a bookshop somewhere, and if anybody tried to talk to him, hey, aren't you... He would just say, like, get the hell out. When, when you'd expect him to be like, oh, poo, silly old bear. Yeah. You know, he didn't want any of that. That's so sad. He could have just changed his name. I mean, Christopher Robin, pretty identifiable. What if he just called himself Chris? I think he was Chris Milne, but, you know, too maybe late. it was too late by that point. But it's just kind of interesting, the chain of events that lead from... Yeah, incredible. You know, we all know and love Winnie the, Winnie the Pooh, yes. you know, even in its... Even in its bastardized Disney version, I mean, it's it's pretty. You know, the the wisdom and the and the kind of eccentricities survive. Um, you know, the way all the characters kind of seem to represent a different part of the human psyche. Uh, I played. It's great. I, I was probably ten when I uh, was Christopher Robin. How was your Christopher Robin? Um, and when during early rehearsals, 
I used a British accent. And then probably three days in, the director said, just speak American. <laughs> a confusing thing about the Disney version is that uh, Christopher Robin and Owl are evidently British. Everyone else just kind of talks like the American character actors and vaudeville veterans. They yeah. are, with no explanation. You'd think Pooh would be like, silly old bear, why are you American? Yeah. And Pooh would be like, I'm a bear of very little brain, Christopher <laughs> Robb and I. Um, so if, you know, if not for that trapper on the platform, if not for the wow. the trauma of World War One, we would never have... Winnie the Pooh. So Winnipeg, you know, Brian Jones might still be alive. Winnipeg's mother died, and the ripple of the ripple on effect was that we all had uh, nice childhoods. It does kind of make you think that um, isn't this kind of a plot point in the Good Place that modernity is so confusing, and the world has shrunk to a degree that we're all tied together so closely that it's really impossible to know whether any particular action is ethical anymore. Wow. You know, the hunter, maybe the trapper probably shouldn't have killed Winnie's mommy. But, yet. but again, it made hundreds of millions of children happy. I really hope that all of the terrible things I've done in life end up knocking on to making people happier, healthier, fitter, more productive. Please take all the problematic things John has said on Omnibus or done and make a delightful children's adaptation of them. It'll it'll secure our legacy. And that concludes Winnipeg the Bear. Entry 1436.PR1712. That was a perfect line reading. No notes. Thank you. So certificate number 51029 in the omnibus. <laughs> Do it, now do it in a British accent. No, that was perfect. All right. Winnipeg the Bear. Entry 1436.PR1712. That sounds more like Owl than like Christopher Certificate Robin. Certificate number 51029 in the omnibus. What, what? I don't know who that guy was. His accent got stricter as time went on. Yeah, he grew a monocle in the middle of the second sentence. In the unlikely event that social media still exists in your era, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram are in- archived at Omnibus Project. <laughs> Our handles were Ken Jennings and John Roderick. Our address for email, which was a popular form of written electronic communication, was the Omnibus Project at gmail.com. No, I don't know what I am. I don't even know what what that accent turned into. You're you're just back from Africa. You're, a, bi- you're a big game hunter. I see. For a group omnibus futurelings Facebook, what uh, what have you? Uh, P.O. Box five five seven four four Shoreline Washington nine eight one five five. Send us things. I, uh, also, by the way, uh, along those lines. Yes. Oh, you have some mail. Let's see. <laughs> Uh, we got a postcard from Scotty of a Mississippi riverboat that reminds him of the Kalakala. Oh, yeah, except it's got one of those post office stickers on the bottom with a barcode on it, and you the, can't stu- see the picture. Why does the post office do this to postcards? I don't know. The post office. They do easy remove. That's they nice. struggle. 
But it, it, he's right. It does kind of have the curved, slightly Art Deco front reminiscent of our... That's a Mississippi River boat. It is, apparently. Mm. Uh, it's the Admiral Excursion Steamer. Uh, trips nightly from St. Louis, at least in 1964, when this postcard oh, nice. originates. I wonder if it's also a casino. It probably is now. We also got from... I can't even read this. Starts with an S. Sal? Scott? Wishes us peace and gratitude. Thanks us for the... Oh, no. It gives my husband and me... Well, I mean, who knows? I, I, yeah, I, I Scott and, and their husband. Who knows? Frog and Toad are friends. Yes. Uh, they sent us some Seattle weirdness, which is a really great postcard from the 62 World's Fair showing us the world's largest birthday cake. Look at that cake. 25,000 pounds. Thank you, Vandekamp's Holland Dutch Bakers, Seattle. Sponsored by CNH Sugar, of which 4,000 pounds was used to ice this cake. Nice. Uh, a sight and taste to remember. Uh, the cake theme is... <laughs> Go on. Okay, did I say it was a wedding cake? It's a birthday cake. Yeah. The theme of the cake is Paul Bunyan's 128th birthday. And sure enough, there's a giant Paul Bunyan atop the cake. What, what did you do to celebrate Paul Bunyan's 128th birthday? <laughs> I wasn't even invited. Apparently, in the years since, there is, was a 5,000-kilogram cake uh, that uh, was made in Bangalore. 5,000 kilograms? I can't even do the math. Would I can't either. It's big. 25,000 pounds is bigger than 5,000 kilograms. Oh. USA. USA. Well, uh, well, wait a minute. Now this, in uh, Thissur, Kerala, they made the world's longest cake. I don't understand what this whole cake escalation thing is and why India is so uh, so committed to having the world's largest cake. Do you want to know? Back off, India. Do you want to know an upsetting thing about Paul Revere's, Paul, Revere, Paul Bunyan's 128th birthday cake? Yeah. It contains 7,000 pounds of raisins. Oh, no. That's not what you want in a birthday cake of of any size. No, 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 no. I mean, at least if nobody ate this, that's 7,000 pounds of raisins off the board (laughs) that no one has to deal with. I like raisins out of the box. I just don't want them in a cake or a cookie. What an unhappy surprise in a cookie. I know. You're like, what a beautiful cake. Oh, no. It's a rum raisin cake. Oh, uh, I don't. I still don't know the first name of this correspondent, but um, their last name is Heart Hip. Heart hip. Heart hip. And it's hyphenated. Like, uh. Mr. Heart and Mrs. Hip married. They met somewhere in the pelvis and, uh-huh. uh, and married. Somewhere in the abdomen. Yeah. Thank and their you. children are aorta and. Thank you to the Heart Hip family because they also sent us, uh, $5 each for a candy bar. Look at that. You can buy Thank a pretty you. nice candy bar for, uh. You can. Let me recommend the fairly new Eminem. Peanut candy bar, which is a giant chocolate bar that has M&Ms and peanuts in it. I really think it's uh, it's that, a top bar. I mean, I like M&M cookies because yeah. the M&Ms are floating in a, in a sea of non-chocolate. But yes. you, you also like M&Ms floating in a sea of more chocolate? Yes, because I think, you know, I'm on the record as preferring American chocolate to European chocolate. You can really taste the candle wax. Because European chocolate tastes like cocoa butter, uh, like like uh, skin cream to me. It's too <laughs> fatty. I want more wax. But I'll tell you what, this is a delicious milk chocolate bar and M&M's and peanuts. 
So good. So please send in John a t-shirt that says, please send John a t-shirt that says, <laughs> I don't like butter. I need more wax. I'm an XL. That'd be good for, good for any occasion. And finally. Uh, I thought you'd forgotten. I thought you forgot the voice. I'm afraid not. Finally. Back, we'll, in, ca- back in character. Here comes the we, colonel. We'll meet them on the beaches. <laughs> yeah. We'll fight them in the fields and on the streams. A lot of people don't know you did a lot of Churchill's wartime speeches when he was unavailable. <laughs> the tops of the trees. We'll fight them in the cafes. Thank you for your service to MI7. <laughs> and support the show at patreon.com slash omnibus project. Boy, all those are very hard words to say in a Churchill accent. Yeah, he would never... You can't imagine him um, plugging his Kickstarter, can no, you? No, he could say omnibus quite well, I'm sure, but patreon.com? <laughs> patreon.com. It just takes you out of the immersion yeah. of the 1940s. Are you, you're, you're done with both That's your it. part of the outro and your character bit? That's it. I'm done. The colonel has nothing more to say. <laughs> Listeners, from our vantage point in your distant past, wait, I can't do, I can't. No, that's my, beautiful. My, what's Woody Allen? Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> He's Brooklyn Poo. <laughs> Christopher Robin. <laughs> He's a. We have no idea how long our civilization survived. We hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come. But if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may be our final word. But if providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus. It's like if Winnie the Pooh was a Neil Simon play. <laughs>